Today on Government Matters, $9 billion may be on the way to turbocharge government IT. One of the leaders of the Tech Modernization Fund tells you what it'll take to get the cash. The fifth anniversary of the Defense Innovation Unit. Its executive director recaps the first five years and previews what's coming in the next five. And the number one story of the week, the race to fill in the blanks in the Biden administration. Two human capital leaders tell you what's coming next. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Technology Modernization Fund could get as much as $9 billion, according to a plan two leaders of the House Oversight and Reform Committee will push. That compares to about $80 million in active award amounts right now. David Shive is the Chief Information Officer at the General Services Administration. He's a member of the Technology Modernization Fund Board and the FedRAMP Joint Authorization Board. David, welcome. It's great to see you again. How is the volume the TF, uh, TMF Board is handling working right now? How Are you able to consider applications in a timely manner? What are the kinds of discussions revolving around the money that's available and so on? Thanks, Francis, and thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Um, yeah, so we're able to manage the, the existing 10 awarded projects right now, and we are indeed actually ready to consider new proposals right now. So if uh, agencies have proposals that meet the criteria for the TMF funding, um, send them our way. We are actively seeking new engagements. And for the mechanics of the board, you know, we, we're fully staffed. We have all the people that we need uh, regarding voting members and um, and support to help us analyze the value of uh, programs. And we are open for business, so uh, send your stuff our way. What's the sense that you have of the scale that you would be able to maintain? Is it a factor of the money, as I mentioned, or is it a factor of the agencies putting together the pitches that they need to send in order to, uh, for, for you all to qualify them? You know, it's it's kind of all of the above. Um, you know, we have the capacity right now to fully manage and run the uh, existing um, money in the bank uh, that we can give out. And if agencies want to just continue to send us their proposals, um, we have the capacity to properly manage that. Um, our hope is that agencies will continue to do that. And we have the ab ability to scale up uh, pretty readily if we need to as well. When you get a proposal, how do you evaluate those proposals? Has the evaluation process changed since the board stood up, David? You know, in classic um, GSA and federal government fashion, uh, we started doing it away and then we've iterated to better outcomes. Uh, we streamlined the process. The value proposition remains the same. Um, we, we do ROI analysis, but that, it's not just focused on financial ROI, it's true value. Um, are the programs um, geared towards mission enablement? Are they um, doing IT and modern delivery methods and stepping away from um, legacy delivery methods that had dubious results? Um, is the thing that an agency wants to do, is it able to scale across government? Or if agency's delivering something specifically for the agency, can they generate a playbook that the rest of government can follow to get the good outcomes they're hoping to achieve through the fund? All of those value proposition criteria are the same. 
how has that uh, has, have they evolved over time at all? Do you ex and do you expect them to evolve over time? If you say had a lot more money that was available to agencies, you started getting a lot more proposals. You know, that's one thing about the way that uh, analysis goes. It is um, agile and iterative as the way we deliver modern tech in the federal government. I suspect that if some of the main mechanics of um, how the TMF operates and the expectations from the larger community change, um, that the process will be able to change right along with it. You're also a member of the Joint Authorization Board uh, for FedRAMP. Same thing there. What do you see as far as operations go and, and getting uh, companies through the authorization process for FedRAMP, David? You know, uh, the FedRAMP uh, program. It's something that we're uh, eminently proud of. And I don't just mean at GSA, I mean across the larger federal IT community. Um, they've taken authorizations that used to take 12 to 18 months for JAB authorization. Um, the average is now down to 4.8 months to do that. Um, so you get value in not only increasing the velocity of programs being authorized through FedRAMP, um, but also you get the primary value of FedRAMP, which is you're doing it on authorization once um, that the entire government can leverage instead of individual agencies having to do this. Um, the, the, the value of the program is revealing itself again and again. That said, um, the team is looking for ways to become even more efficient, to make that authorization process increasingly lightweight, increasingly automated, um, so that we can increase the velocity and yield even greater gains uh, that the program has analyzed. Is there possibly a point of diminishing returns, either in FedRAMP or with the TMF, where it's possible that you might be pushing things, not that suggesting that you are, but that you might push things too quickly and that there is a point where you're going to say, you, you just mentioned 4.8, I'm throwing a number out there. Three months is really the sweet spot, and to do it any faster than that doesn't give you a good outcome on the other end. Absolutely. You know, you could be a project management professional with that comment, Francis. The fact is, if you increase velocity too very much, uh, you start to uh, increase quality concerns into the dynamic, but good delivery teams um, account for that. And so we'll continue to push for increased velocity taking a very close look at quality as we do so, and then there becomes a happy medium. We don't know where that is, but we'll continue to push the speed um, until we start to see uh, some of those issues, and then we'll back off just a little bit. That's, that's how iterative modern IT is supposed to work, and we'll follow that process. You've used that word velocity a couple of times. What's the significance of that word uh, instead of using the word capacity or using the word, uh, and some other word? So, uh, great question. So, the fact is that modern 21st century business uh, is delivered at just incredible rates. And the government, how it delivers its ability to serve um, the citizens and for technology to serve the business of government, um, has to uh, operate as quickly and rapidly at increased velocity um, that not only the business of government demands, but also the citizens of the United States expect of their government. It's a key area that we've been focusing on um, that allows us to stay really, really um, closely aligned with changing administration priorities, changing business priorities in government, our ability to rapidly um, uh, change to accommodate those, uh, those requirement changes, 
is a sign of a well-functioning organization. David, thanks. My conversation with David Shive continues Monday on Government Matters. You can watch that program at 8 and 11 in the evening on WJLA 24-7 News. Coming next, groundbreaking innovations at the Defense Innovation Unit. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a review of its first few years and a preview of the coming years. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. A wearable device that detects when someone could be sick is one of the projects the Defense Innovation Unit is working on. It's one example of the kinds of projects the unit has taken on in its first five years of, of existence. Mike Madsen is Deputy Director and Director of Strategic Engagement at the Defense Innovation Unit. Mike, welcome. It's good to see you again. Now that you're five years in, what is going well and what are maybe some of the challenges that you still see? Uh, great. Well, uh, thanks, Francis, for uh, having me back. Uh, always exciting to uh, be on and talk about getting technology to our men and women in uniform. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, as you pointed out, uh, so we're celebrating our fifth uh, anniversary this year. Uh, in 2015, then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter started DIU as a way to reinvigorate that connective tissue uh, of the triangle of academia, government, and the commercial tech sector. Uh, now, we've learned a lot of lessons uh, along the way. Um, to improve our performance, such as we now start with a DOD uh, defense partner with a problem to solve, uh, and we don't really do the tech discovery uh, like we did in the early days. But we remain focused on uh, working across the joint force to accelerate commercial technology uh, and methodologies into the Department of Defense at the speed of relevance. So uh, a mark of some of the success that we have had is that we've been able to scale uh, technologies and methodologies across the department. One of our early successes is the tanker planning tool. That's where we prototype industry best practices for software development to solve an air refueling planning challenge. And the Air Force took that, uh, that methodology and they scaled that to now what is Kessel Run, a software development organization within the Air Force. Uh, more recently, uh, we were able to scale AI-enabled predictive maintenance uh, across multiple uh, defense platforms and multiple defense services under a $100 million production contract. And we did that uh, relatively quickly. Uh, currently, we have about 35 projects uh, in the works, and seven of those are our priority uh, projects that are intended to transform the capability and the capacity of the department by scaling uh, much broadly across the, the department. Uh, we've also been able to scale our commercial solutions opening and our other transaction authority across other DOD entities to help those organizations with uh, their rapid acquisition. And one of the things that we specifically took a look at over the last couple of years is an in-depth look at our transition rate, because that's really uh, the, where the rubber meets the road, really. And we found that sometimes we had some successful prototypes that did not transition for a variety of obstacles. And so what we did is we, we've re revamped a little bit. And so now we start with the end transition in mind uh, before we even take on projects. And we also generated a two internal organizations, a commercial engagement team and a defense engagement team. And they're both charged with working with their uh, commercial vendors or defense partners as uh, it applies to help them uh, march down that path uh, from prototype to transition. Mike, if one approaches this like a startup mentality, uh, as you did at the beginning, strikes me that the transition rate shouldn't be expected to be 100%. Do you have a transition rate that you're aiming for or that's acceptable, or is it just something that you're trying to constantly improve? 
Uh, well, Francis, it's something that we're always trying to improve, but you're exactly right. If our transition rate was 100%, that would tell me that we're not taking nearly enough risk and uh, being agile and uh, innovative. Uh, if it was 0%, that would obviously be a problem on the other side. So there, there's a certain amount of, of learning that goes along with that. Uh, you know, there's a, a saying in the valley, fail early, fail often, fail fast, because uh, you know what doesn't work, and then you move on to, to find something uh, that uh, does work. Uh, so we started at about uh, 35%, and some people say, oh, one-third, that, that's pretty good. Uh, we didn't think so, so we uh, undertook that analysis I mentioned. We're, we're up to about 45% now, and I think 50% or more is certainly uh, very in our very near future. Just about any startup uh, supporter, uh, any venture capitalist that I know would love a 50% success rate in the ventures that they undertook. You mentioned Kessel Run a moment ago, and I think that example is a good one because not only has the Air Force found success with that, but the other branches have said, we want some of that success also. Is that ultimately what the goal is here, is to propagate this success all across the department? Does it matter who takes your ideas and runs with them, or is it just a matter that, is it more important that the ideas are out there? Uh, that, that's one of our key tenets is, uh, we want to spread across the, the entire department. Um, we, you know, don't uh, care who picks up those things. I use the example of our commercial solutions opening. Those are uh, used fairly widely now, as well as other transaction authorities. So we definitely uh, look to work across the joint force, uh, working with all the services, uh, the, the fourth estate, so-called fourth estate, uh, with the defense agencies to leverage uh, the commercial technology and get it into the department as quick as possible. We have about 30 seconds left, Mike. You mentioned the triad at the beginning of this conversation, academia, tech, and defense. Is there one of those legs of that that you would like to try to strengthen in the coming years? Well, we'd just like to continue to build uh, that connective tissue uh, all the way around. You mentioned the, the wearables at the uh, opening. Uh, we're working with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, uh, Texas A&M University, uh, on those wearables. We have about 8,000 participants, and we've been able to uh, detect uh, COVID prior to symptoms or testing. Uh, so again, that's another great example of uh, increasing that connective tissue uh, in that triangle is going to absolutely pay dividends across the department. Mike, thanks very much for joining me. Congratulations on the first five, and good luck in the next five. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the number one story of the week, straight ahead on Government Matters, filling in the blanks in the Biden administration as soon as possible. You're watching ABC7. Now, the number one story of the week. Just about every agency has a long list now of appointees and nominees from President Joe Biden. Many of them are appointees that the Senate doesn't need to confirm. Janice Lachance is executive vice president at the American Geophysical Union, former director of the Office of Personnel Management. Jerry Buckholtz is former chief human capital officer at NASA. Ladies, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Janice, we talked about this last time you were on the program. Uh, are you seeing this uh, happening in the way Way that you expected with these uh, political appointees don't need confirmation coming in and really getting rolling at these agencies. I think the Biden transition and now the Biden administration may be writing the how-to manual uh, for transitions for administrations of the future. I think this is exemplary. It's a great way to handle this interim period while people are waiting to be confirmed. 
it continues to work. The Biden administration recognized the, the country was in crisis to a great extent between the pandemic and the economic repercussions of that and some of the other priorities they've set forth like climate and diversity. The reality is we couldn't afford a two, three, four month gap. That's not to let the Senate off the hook. They still have to vet and confirm some 1,200 appointees. So hopefully that will keep moving. But this partnership between political appointees and the career civil service who have stepped up and taken on a lot of these acting roles is going to ensure that the citizens get what they need from this government without a gap. Jerry, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. What is the value both from your experience as an HR professional, but also a career executive at a very important agency like NASA is, what's the value in having these folks coming in right away and being able to give some guidance to the career people about where things are gonna go? Oh, you can't even measure it. It is so important. And um, clearly the president understands that he needs the power of 2 million plus uh, public servants of the US federal government behind him in order to accomplish his very important agenda. Additionally, it's not just that they've hired these people fast. They've done it efficiently and effectively. They've used structured interviews in a staged process. Structured interviews are the best way to select a high quality workforce. So what they've done is not just exemplary in terms of timing, it's also exemplary in terms of HR what does that term mean, structured interview, Jerry? What, how does that, how is that something that could work uh, in other parts of the government too, not just for political appointees? It is used across the federal government, perhaps not as much as it could be. So a structured interview is a series of questions designed to tease out the skills and competencies that you are looking for with a scoring mechanism. And then every interview, as they interview each candidate, scores each answers, and then the scores are rolled up, and you're able to rate and rank your candidates based on the skill sets that you need for the job. And over and over again, human resources research has proved that this is the most effective way to hire people for any job. Janice, to your point about the Biden administration potentially rewriting kind of the guidebook on how to do this, is there an appropriate role for OPM or for Congress to codify this so that whoever the next administration is, whenever they come in, maybe not force them to do it because it's their choice to, to choose the people they want for these jobs, but to at least kind of harden the process or mature the process, I'm not even sure what the right word is, so that this does continue to happen administration after administration. I think documenting best practices makes sense across the board and certainly in a time of, an, of uncertainty and uh, squishiness in the government where people are on their way out, others are on their way in, to, to have an organized and documented process to follow that you can choose to follow or modify um, really would be a great help. And I do think that it 
it takes a lot of parties. It takes OPM. It takes the White House to make sure that they are giving advice to an incoming administration. Uh, the Congress plays an important role in all of this through oversight and through just informal advice from staff to staff and member to elected officials. I think across the board, not to mention that there are great groups supporting these processes. There's ASPA, there's NAPA, there's the partnership. There are so many organizations who have studied this that really kind of trying to track it, and particularly this year, I think will really help people maintain that continuity so that the American people don't have any kind of gap in service, gap in leadership, or delay in uh, program, program or policy implementation. About 30 seconds left, so a very quick thought from each of you. Janice, you're first. What will you watch? Well, well, I'll watch how fast the Senate takes on the other 1,200 people that they have to uh, they have to uh, confirm once they're done with the cabinet. Those are critical roles. They touch everything in this government, everything in the country, everything in the world. And I think um, the Senate owes it to the American people to move expeditiously on those. Jerry, 15 seconds. I will watch how fast the Biden administration can build trust with federal workforce to get them to stand up and speak up and do the good work of the public service. Jerry Buckholtz and Janice Lachance, thanks both very much. I appreciate your time today. Great. Don't forget, Thank if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs by getting our pro daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.